Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. And this podcast is all about human rights. This is part two of the coronavirus special. And I have with me Judith Bueno de Mesquita, who's co-deputy director of the Human Rights Centre and a lecturer in international human rights law at the University of Essex. Nicola Higgins and Keelan Gallagher, Queen's Council, who are both barristers at Doughty Street Chambers. Ethan Nolan, who is a professor of international human rights law at the University of Nottingham. As always, this podcast is kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. With Goldsmiths' rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you'll study with students and academics passionate about human rights and social justice. This is part two of a two-part episode. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so via patreon.com forward slash better human and it'd be hugely appreciated if you could chip in a few pounds if you find it useful. Um, I just want to ask about testing. What One, community testing. Um, we've been talking a lot about transparency and information sharing. And I've been wondering whether the one way of looking at t- the provision of testing is from a kind of freedom of information point or maybe it's just transparency or maybe it's just good good governance good governance but it, it i'm not a behavioral scientist but i would have thought that if you test someone and they know they've got covid19 or know they've had it that is the surest way of ensuring they will behave in a way which you want them to behave because at the moment we know nothing um and you know if you've got your kids got a cold and you're staying in for two weeks i can quite understand why people will get frustrated with that although we're, we're all going to do it um, well, I say we're all going to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that we're not all going to do it. And I was just wondering about that testing point and whether it's something. Um, I, I mean, I, I will say that I think that the I don't know enough about the capacity of you know how easy it is just to get hold a load a load of tests. I think it's easy to say to the government, "Oh, you're not doing enough testing." I don't know if you're in the government. I, I imagine they're thinking, "Yes, we want loads more tests," but it's not that as straightforward. But just looking at that generally, do you think that? does raise a kind of is it governance is it information is it transparency is it all, all, all of the above yeah i think um on, on the point of testing i think first of all you know there's clearly been this very serious issue in terms of health professionals not having access to testing which i gather is now uh, changing which i think is really important within the community um you know we the who it's been their sort of absolutely central point test 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 and that includes um you know widespread testing it's not just um targeted testing of people with um, severe symptoms which is also of course important um and we see in other countries they have had some success with a much more widespread um approach to testing in the community and i think you're right it does raise um issues in terms of access to um information about your health um, and also, it's, it's um, part of the right to health framework as well. Uh, and and it, and we do know that it's, um, we or, or at least the WHO tells us this this is a very important intervention. And I'm, um, I, I think that's really important to take account of the guidance that's coming out of the WHO on this. Well, it also goes to Jude's point about misinformation because there was express misinformation coming from government sources earlier this week. So Grant Shapps MP on the Today programme at the start of this week claimed that the UK 
uh, other than China and Italy, was carrying out more tests than any other country in the world, and that's been comprehensively debunked as, a, as an Trump, absolute figure. Trump, Trumpism, you know, yeah, we do, we're doing the most tests, we're doing better tests yeah, than anybody absolutely. ever. Absolutely, but it, that, that's been comprehensively debunked as an absolute figure, and then when you look at it in relation to population size, the figure's even more um, appalling. Um, but that's a, another example of, uh, I think, what Jude was talking about earlier, about the lack of transparency, and that's fundamentally misleading the public, um, whether by uh, accident or design. Um, and I think this is an issue about good governance. And there is uh, an issue about, uh, apart from individual behavioral issues, how you can actually analyze the data that you've got in circumstances where you're not doing adequate testing. And I very much agree with Jude on uh, the need to comply with what the WHO has said, which is essentially test, test, test. And that's something we're not doing. Can we talk about freedom of expression? Um, and this might be one of those 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 issues that gets lost in the in all of this because you think oh well you know the most important thing is to protect people's health but there is an element of if you don't have a functioning if you if you don't have functioning newspapers citizen journalists you don't have free expression then bad governance doesn't get exposed and 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 there have been issues all around the world haven't there over this Yes, that's right. Well, there's two closely related issues, Adam. Uh, the first is that in a number of countries, governments have failed to uphold the right to freedom of expression and have taken action against journalists, healthcare workers and whistleblowers when they've spoken out specifically about COVID-19. And that has obviously limited effective communication about the onset of the disease, undermined trust in government actions and uh, has affected freedom of expression. So there's some examples of that. Egypt, for example, in the past few days, revoked the press credentials of a British journalist, a Guardian journalist, and censored the New York Times Cairo uh, bureau chief over what they described as bad faith reporting on the country's coronavirus uh, situation. And their intelligence services said uh, that they wouldn't hesitate to jail individuals uh, who published bad faith reporting undermining Egyptian interests. Uh, and similarly, in China, we've seen a situation where the Chinese government, eager to claim victory in what its leader described as the people's war against the virus, has brought in sweeping powers to try to target domestic journalists in China and has actually expelled a whole series of US reporters from the Washington Post, the New York Times, and so on. So that's the first kind of basket, the countries who are keen to manage their reputation and show how well they're doing in the fight against COVID-19 and not liking reporters speaking out or whistleblowers speaking out in a way which undermines that line. Um, and that's not something very distant. You know, in many ways, some of the criticisms that are being made of uh, Donald Trump in the US, or, or indeed the testing figures in the UK, also relate to other forms of reputation management um, and journalists not being given the full picture. But the second issue, uh, which I've seen in the past few days, is countries which were already targeting uh, journalists um, in very brutal ways are using the coronavirus crisis as an excuse to effectively impose travel bans on journalists, uh, potentially to jail journalists while the world's eyes are not watching. Um, so they are things we need to be very aware of. And could I just say, I notice on the list of key workers which has come out from the UK government uh, that public service broadcasters and journalists are on the list, and quite rightly so, because journalists have a fundamental role to play uh, at the moment uh, for all of us. Um, in telling us precisely what's happening and giving us the key information, education, access to information concerning healthcare and concerning what is happening. 
Oh, just to add in, um, The Guardian is reporting that a uh, journalist from Wuhan is missing, presumed detained. He was apparently one um, who, for whom the coronavirus crisis led to a political awakening and a demand for free speech. And uh, so, yeah, so it's not just um, foreign journalists who are being um, excluded from the country, but also it seems as though they might be increasing their detention of journalists and, as and, well. And we, we know from the beginning of the crisis that in Wuhan, there were the, the initial doctors who blew the whistle and said there's something going on here that isn't just a, an ordinary flu were were disciplined they were yeah. they, they were sanctioned they were weren't silenced, they? Yeah. and the um, same things happened in thailand same things happened in iran um so you know that that is um writ large that kind of reputation management on the global stage where uh, governments simply want to protect their reputation and people who speak out and uh, undermine the official narrative and the official line get targeted. So, you know, it's from the dictator's playbook. It's something very familiar, but it's something we need to be very alert to at the moment. And one of the particular concerns for many of my clients who are journalists or media organizations who are being targeted at the moment uh, is that it's much harder to get traction on these issues because everyone's focused on coronavirus and it's much harder to get leverage and to get interlocutors to intercede on your behalf at the moment because people are so taken up. All the airtime is taken up with coronavirus. So they're more at risk uh, in many cases of being targeted and it's much more difficult to then get leverage to try to address, uh, to try to protect them and to address what's happened. It's a good time to bury bad human rights news. Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, I, just as an aside, I, I noticed that the government, I think on Monday or Tuesday, released the Overseas um, Overseas Forces Act, um, which is just a little sneaky amendment to the Human Rights Act to prevent soldiers being prosecuted for um, for anything that happened five years ago um, or or more, um, and except in exceptional circumstances. And that was, you know, a bit of nobody nobody picked that up because everyone was absolutely deeply focused on this um, three hundred twenty page coronavirus bill which you know on and in the grand scheme of things is obviously extremely important but you know th th we've got to be wary and and aware that this is going to happen because why wouldn't it happen um i just want to um talk about one more thing before we go to the bill which is scrutiny and it picks up on that point about journalists but in a in a liberal, democratic, and human rights compliant, compliant society, there are mechanisms of scrutiny which allow, in real time, sometimes, um, for for a for a critique to happen from a, through a human rights lens of government and state and public authority policy, and that seems to be really important. I just want to do a pl plug for the um, Joint Committee on Human Rights because I'm acting as a special advisor to their new inquiry on the coronavirus outbreak and they're looking for submissions at the moment you can go on the website but this this podcast is is nothing to do with that it's not under those auspices but that seems a good example what are there any other mechanisms that we should, should make sure are maintained or any that you think could be set up to properly scrutinize what's going on in a constructive um, but robust way I mean, I think there is there's there is an opportunity for engagement at the international level. There's been very strong statements by a range of UN experts, these special procedures focusing on different aspects of state responses in the COVID-19 pandemic. There's a very powerful statement from the 20th of March uh, from the special rapporteur on the rights of uh, people with disabilities, really flagging the impact, the risks posed to them by COVID-19 and state responses, whether it be quarantine with inadequate support to loss of income, 
um, exacerbating pre-existing, you know, poverty, which means that, for instance, disabled people can't stockpile because they can't afford to in the way that other groups can. I mean, there's a way you can engage with those mechanisms at the international level. There's obviously in the UK, we're seeing... Uh, relatively slowly in some instances, but up and running. We're seeing some of the national human rights institutions. Uh, there's a very powerful uh, call by the Scottish Commissioner for Children and Young People, which I saw online today, talking about how we need to br bring, you know, uh, scrutinise how children's rights are being protected or not in responses or taken into account. Um, you see, I you will see similar work, I'm sure, coming out of the... Uh, uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission of Great Britain and of Northern Ireland and of Scotland, of course, as things develop. So there's both the international and the domestic. But I mean, obviously, legal action is a key thing. And I think, you know, when you when we go on to discuss the bill, it will become clear how important uh, the role of law and the rule of law will be when it comes to ensuring effective scrutiny of um, of government action in the context of COVID-19. And that means keeping the courts open in some way. I think also, um, I, I fully agree with everything that Eva's just said. I think it's really important that um, when there's scrutiny in the UK, that we do refer to the full range of rights um, that are protected at the international level. So that includes the economic, social, cultural, as well as the civil and political. And national human rights institutions are very valuable for that because they derive um, their mandate partly from the international human rights uh, standards. So, so, so that will be um, really important for them um and, and obviously parliament plays a big role yeah and, and and we can't forget that the primary well i suppose the base level um scrutiny of the democratic system happens in the in parliament and parliamentary in, in mps being able to meet and vote and discuss and have committees and, and that sort of thing but this is a this is a challenge for that as well isn't it because physically it's very difficult for people to meet now Yes, Jude. Absolutely. And I think um, these important institutions scrutinising provide a really important way to learn what's gone well as well as what's not gone very well. Um, but I'd also like to say that um, having human rights guidance is also incredibly important. Um, and so we need to think about ways to assisting um, policymakers, lawmakers to ensure um, that there is compatibility with human rights. And, and I do know that the UN, the, uh, at, at the interagency level, they are working on that. Um, and I'm not sure exactly when it's, it's going to be ready, but it is something which is in the picture. What I would say, and this is, of course, a shameless professional plug, but I think it's very important that uh, scrutiny in this case, given that it's about public health, given the comparative experience and international experience and all sorts of other things that are not necessarily the day-to-day -day fodder of uh, UK MPs, really ha there has to be massive upskilling on the part of parliamentarians if they're going to scrutinise. As you say, they have the key role where this is concerned. So they have to reach out. Partnerships have to be established with people who can provide assistance. And I do think, and as I say, it's a professional plug, that it's a time when academics have a very important role to play, contacting MPs working on this, not necessarily advocating for one position or another. You can be, you know, neutral providers of information, but making sure that MPs have the information that they have in order to scrutinise the various measures that are being pushed through, because it won't be it, it won't be lawyers who have the time to do that in these highly pressurised times, really, you know, 
there the focus will be primarily judicial. But really, there are other, you know, think tanks, academics really have to up their game to make sure that MPs have the information and the knowledge they need to scrutinise adequately a range of measures, whether legislative, whether policy, whatever. And it's vitally important that that expertise is legal, but it's also vitally important that it uh, engages experts from from a range of disciplines, uh, whether it's public, you know, public health, medicine, um, social scientists and so on and so forth. All of these groups have a vital role to play in supporting an informed, evidence based and effective response that is grounded in human rights. Yeah, so let's all come together and and help each other and upskill each other. That's that I I, I like that. It's call to arms. Um, I just want to ask, what the, just pick up on what Eva says about international cooperation. Um, obviously, the, the 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 origins of the human rights system are not in domestic like local laws. There are international standards, and one of the points of them is to I think the the Universal Declaration has at the beginning um, in the preamble um, comments about that preventing preventing the scourge of war and there is an element of encouraging through common standards a international cooperation and also uh, through the avoidance of sort of nationalist um rhetoric and blame in the line you know along the lines that keelan was talking about about you know all the different nationalities who were blamed for cholera and is it is is that realistic is that something which can be be achieved or at least assisted by well, these international yeah, human I, rights ideas. I mean, I think it's very interesting. You know, you talk about the Universal Declaration there, Adam. Um, if we look at uh, the 1966 uh, a legally binding uh, treaty, including which is also the UK has volunteered to be bound by the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, which Jude has spoken about, which includes this right uh, of everyone to the highest attainable standard of health. We see there, we move past kind of general expressions of everyone should be supportive and we should be, you know, jolly nice as a jolly League of Nations to a very explicit legal obligation that every state party to the present covenant undertakes to take steps. And I'm reading here individually and through international assistance and cooperation, especially economic and technical, uh, with a view to achieving progressively the full realization of the rights recognized in the covenant. So this isn't just about, you know, we should link arms, sing, you know, joy to the world and, you know, support each other. There's actually an obligation on states who've signed up to that instrument, including the UK, to provide assistance to others. And I think it's extremely important to emphasize that. I mean, first of all, in the time of globalized travel, if we think about things like the very limited UK response, you know, bar... What has that meant in terms of people who have been able to travel from from the UK to other places that have more vulnerable or fragile health systems? What has the UK played its role there and indeed other countries? I talk about the UK, but that's because that's where we're sitting at the moment. And I think also relatedly, very importantly, we saw the news, I think, a few days ago. We had the situation where Venezuela had a request for aid uh, to support its coronavirus effort, which was uh, refused on the basis of a question as to who was the legitimate or the recognized president of the country. And on the one hand, we can clearly see that that's a, di a discussion that, you know, you know, who who is the legitimate ruler of Venezuela on the one hand emanates from this 
you know, this attempted coup earlier on with US involvement. But what it means in practice is that the IMF has said, because this question is not resolved, we will not, we are not in a position to consider Venezuela's request. Okay. And we can sit back and we can say, oh, well, the IMF, you know, this is an international financial institution. It's not a state. But states are members of the IMF and they are bound by their obligations and their decision making as members of the IMF. And that extends to international cooperation and assistance. Okay, so what I'm saying is that these are obligations that states have towards, you know, have towards citizens. I suppose the citizens of everywhere in the context of COVID-19. And we are not necessarily seeing those obligations being given effect to on a, you know, a one to one state level you know, a bilateral basis, or in terms of the actions of organisations such as the IMF or the World Bank that have state representatives or involvement, where the states have obligations, but they're not, they are not supporting more fragile health, countries with more fragile health systems in giving effect to the right to health. Yeah, I think, I think in a way, um, it, it's very, we, we're in a crisis in our country. It's very natural for people being very alarmed about it and focusing on what what needs to be done here. But um, we also need to take a step back and recognise the scale of. I mean, it is is hard to even imagine it. But the, the scale of what is going to be faced by countries that have weak health systems that that, that are poor, um, financially poor, um, that are affected by conflict um, and, you know, for example, refugee camps um, and just think about it's it's really very frightening. There is a much greater need um, for us all to think about the global scale of this. Um, And, you know, thinking is being done about that in 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 Geneva and so on and so forth. Uh, It's not the the exact um, form that it needs to take is something which I'm I'm personally unclear about, but but it's absolutely something we all need to think about. I mean, it's it's given how much this crisis is decimating uh, rich democracies. Imagine what it's going to look like in a in a refugee camp in on the Syrian border or in or in in certain parts of Africa where they, as you say, warm ventilator for every however many hundreds of thousands of people, um, and and that you know, I, I mean, I think that that's a bigger discussion than we've got time for, and it's more. It is indeed a discussion that's bigger than we have time for, but it's a crucial discussion yeah. because human rights isn't just about human rights at home, and it isn't just about you know making sure that people's civil liberties aren't infringed. It's about ensuring human rights realization globally. Yeah, and what's important is that even if that discussion isn't had today, that it's had in future, that it's put on the agenda and that it's kept more importantly, forget the podcast, but it's put on the agenda and kept on the agenda of policymakers and legislators here once we are past our phase of the COVID-19 global pandemic crisis. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So I'm I'm just going to finish off by looking at this coronavirus bill. Now, there there is a new bill. Um, it's 329 pages long. Um, it, it has 73 pages of explanatory notes, and it has 73. Uh, sorry, it has a, a, over 100 pages of, of impact assessment. Now, th- this bill is probably, I would say, the most wide-ranging. Um, will have the most wide-ranging impact on particular rights of any bill, including anti-terrorism um, acts that came after 9/11. 
in 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 modern history the house of commons is going to vote it through all stages on monday it was released yesterday which is thursday and then i think the lords will 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 approach it later in that week so it's going to be and and, and having had a brief read of it each section each each part of it would merit in ordinary times months of discussions of inquiries of t- calls for evidence of amendments um, and it's all going to be done in about 48 hours now that is weighted obviously on the ex- the extreme and acute crisis that we are experiencing and the fact that there is you know a, a threat to life in, in it, which is also unprecedented in recent times, you know, in, in the upper ends of the analysis, there could be half a million people who die from this and it could, they could die in quite a short period. So I think that there is, you have to balance it with that. Um, but I'm, I'm just going to give a sort of very quick rundown of, of some of the things that the, that the bill will do. Um, so there's a whole um, big section on bringing more people into the health service, which effectively liberalises the rules for who is allowed to give health care. Um, and there's obvious reasons for that, because they want to try and bring in lots and lots of retired nurses and doctors. I think there's a 70,000 letters went out this morning. They want to bring in um, close to qualification medical students. Um, and that involves they're going to, the government are going to indemnify people so that they um, so that if they've not already got insurance, they will have insurance, which I guess will encourage people to come forward and, and volunteer. And perhaps also accepts that at some point there are going to be doctors and nurses providing care, which they wouldn't ordinarily provide within their expertise and they might not otherwise be insured for. Um, there's also the same for social workers. There's an emergency volunteers um, provision which allows for the government to pay people for loss of earnings caused by volunteering to assist in this crisis. Um, and then there is a section on mental health. So there is going to be, a, I, I don't want to use the word liberalisation, that's slightly the wrong word. There is going to be a relaxation of some of the rules around mental health d- detention. So for example, um, when you have an assessment, you will only have to be assessed by one doctor instead of two um, in order to have that assessment. There is a very significant change. I mean, if you put it like that, to local authority and NHS support, because there is going to be no over the course of this bill. This bill will last for two years. There will be no requirement anymore for local authorities to make assessments of people except when they think that there is going to be a breach of their human rights. So ordinarily, local authorities have a duty to assess anybody um, who may be um, at risk um, in order to uh, assess them for services. And then they have a duty to provide those services. And now the local authorities will have no duty. It's a power, but not duty. So they've got a, a discretion to do it, except in the most extreme cases, which are where convention rights are at risk. And that's European convention rights. So not health and social care, um, not not social and economic rights, but 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 the um, the convention, which is a much more limited protection. Um, there's no requirement anymore under this bill for continuing healthcare assessments to be made, um, in particularly in the NHS, which is, and the justification is, this will allow people to be discharged from hosp- hospital much quicker and release pressure. And I should also say that the justification for the social care changes is that local authorities are going to be so overwhelmed operationally by 
dealing with coronavirus and you know people being ill and dying and and put it as starkly as that but they simply will not have time to or capacity to assess to comply with their duties to assess people so it's being taken away um, there's be a liberalisation of the rules around registration of deaths and stillbirths in the coronial area. There will be they're removing the requirement that all deaths by infection read by particular infectious diseases of which COVID nineteen is a is a notified infectious disease that those inquests all have to take place by with a jury and now they won't have to take place with the jury so they can take place without a jury and the obvious. Um, explanation by the government for that is that um, if there's going to be 50, 25,000 or up to 500,000 jury inquests, they, they will just overwhelm the system. They will never happen. And these are investigations into deaths which must happen under human rights laws um, as they exist at the moment. Um, the rules for quarantine, so you'll be able to quarantine, the police will be able to quarantine people if they if they consider they are suffering from the, uh, the COVID-19 or are at risk of um, being infected by COVID-19. Um, there are um, provisions to force schools to stay open, presumably to um, provide education for, well, to provide childcare effectively for key workers. We're seeing some of that today. Um, there are changes to statutory sick pay, pensions, um, suspension of port operations, and it goes on and on and on and on. Uh, powers relating to ev events, gatherings and premises. So being able to shut down events, gathering and premises, use of video and audio technology in courts. I mean, I I'm actually going to stop there because I I'm running out of um, of the will to keep just doing this. But you, you, but you get the picture that this is absolutely vast. It's a vast change in the way the state is going to work and they want it to last for two years and the first question i was just going to ask is under civil contingency um under the civil contingency act which is the usual way that governments deal with national emergencies there is what's called a sunset clause on any regulations which are brought in by ministers of, along these lines of 30 days and here the government want two years they want this to last for two years once powers are act well so once the the bill comes into force um what what do people think about that i thought there was something very powerful said by fanula nielon the un special rapporteur um on counterterrorism, human rights and counterterrorism. Uh, yesterday on Twitter, in fact, of all places, where she said the world has learned some very hard lessons about the misuse of counterterrorism, violent extremism legislation and powers in the past two decades. Let us not repeat the same mistakes by rushing to legislate exceptionality for COVID-19. And she said governments rushing to legislate emergency powers in the COVID crisis must include meaningful sunset clauses. And I think when you look at Clause 75 on expiry and Clause 76 on the power to alter the expiry date, uh, not only do you have these breathtakingly broad powers, but you've got them for this very long period of time. So the expiry under the bill, as I read it, is two years, but Section 76 gives a power for it to be extended further by a further six months to two and a half years. And that seems to me astonishing and completely at odds with the government's line yesterday about turning the tide within 12 weeks, but also completely at odds with the approach taken elsewhere. So if you look in um, the Irish Parliament in the Dáil, 
where uh, an equivalent bill was debated yesterday, it's got a sunset clause of November this year, November 2020, which is much longer than the period under the Civil Contingencies Bill. So six months. Yeah, it's six months. Well, it's essentially eight months since the start, but it's a six-month period. So a two-and-a-half-year period just seems astonishing. And it's a a two-and-a-half-year period in relation to the entirety of these uh, powers, which is very concerning. I've got some el- some other things to say on the bill, but on the sunset clause, I think that's one of the fundamental problems. And combination of this, um, combination of this uh, sunset clause being so long, and combined with all stages of this hugely complex bill being rushed through in essentially twenty four hours, um, should give us real cause for concern. Um, any other? Does anyone want to come in on any particular aspects of the bill? Yeah, I, I'm quite interested um, and somewhat concerned about the fairly striking provisions uh, in terms of the powers of detention, including by police and public health professionals uh, of individuals who are uh, either infected or believed to be infected by coronavirus and might infect others. I mean, I very much like to know the response of uh, public health experts from this country in terms of the likely impact of this. Um, I've got some concerns personally about marginalised groups, uh, so undocumented migrants, people or in, in insecure work or caring duties, and whether such a provision um, could discourage people from seeking treatment. But I, I mean, public health experts would be very much the best place to, to advise based on their experience. Um, secondly, I, I'm con- a little concerned about it because, of course, um, Disease prevention also relies on, you know, tried and tested public health methods like widespread testing, contact tracing and treatment, um, as well as hygiene and social distancing and voluntary treatment and voluntary isolation. Um, And and it seems to me that this is quite a sort of... um, it might be it might serve a role in some ways possibly but but these other interventions some of which aren't being carried out already are are absolutely central um, and of course voluntary self-isolation and treatment is is very much a preferred option um, and you know only after that could we consider um, a compulsory approach if that's not if that's not working and there are important provisions um, it, you know it must be a last resort um, type of intervention and there's important provisions in terms of it being, you know, based in science necessary to achieve the objective um, and there are no less uh, restrictive measures available. Um, and, and the other thing I suppose to say is I'm, I'm interested in this because of um, the, the, the nature of this disease where also it's transmiss- transmissible before symptoms occur or in asymptomatic cases. So th- this has to be if it, if it is part of a response, it has it has to be part of a much sort of broader, broader response. Um, and it, yeah, it does seem quite selective if we're pr- proposing to do it in terms of um, not at the same time providing more widespread community testing and contact tracing. I note that the bill just coming in on that. I note that the bill is um, conferring upon a constables as as well as immigration officers the power to detain where a person is potentially infectious. I mean, it's enormously wide. What sort of training yeah. are these people going to have? Well, we're all potentially infectious. All, of, all you have to I, do I is have, cough. I would have thought. All no, you have to do is I cough mean, on the I, street. But, but I, I'm not even sure you do need to cough because mm. because I've, I, I, the the extent of this spread, from what I understand, we're all potentially infectious now, especially in London. You know, we, 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 regardless of showing any symptoms, is because it, you're infected. You can be infected for days without showing any symptoms. So, 
I would have thought really the power here is to 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 detain anyone um, in in well in London in central London where there are hotspots of of the virus where there's a next door neighbor's got the virus or whether the kids have been in a school where there's been an outbreak of the virus that that would easily catch it but the question is the the powers there are they, are they going to actually be using it Keely, do you want to come in on a different point? Uh, I want point? to come in on a slightly different point. I, I mean, look, the, the bill uh, from my very quick skim read um, is obviously a curate's egg. I mean, some parts of it uh, are eminently sensible, um, but I think there are some very serious concerns about certain parts of it, uh, which seem to go far outside um, the immediate response to COVID. So two places in particular where there's concerns relate to adult social care, and I note Aoife said earlier quite rightly that academics in particular um, and NGOs and expert bodies should step up to the plate and provide scrutiny and legal practitioners, practicing lawyers are going to be in more difficulty doing it. Um, but there is one notable exception to that. And Jamie Burton, uh, one of our colleagues at Doughty Street and who runs Just Fair, uh, did a superb thread on Twitter in the last couple of days uh, about his very serious concerns about the amendments to the Care Act 2014, uh, which essentially strip bare the Care Act 2014 and remove entirely the duty to assess on uh, local authorities, which is a really fundamental and uh, deeply concerning change. And similarly, the provisions removing the need for two doctors to sign off the sectioning of a person uh, are extremely concerning. But there's one other point I wanted to make, which is uh, I also think there's a, a key area which is entirely omitted in the um, bill, and that relates to the hostile environment. And um, for any of us who've been working in relation to the problematic effects of NHS charging on very vulnerable people and the information sharing between NHS trusts and immigration enforcement, we know that that is not only problematic in relation to individual rights, so the, the rights of individual pregnant women who are migrants or the rights of uh, other individuals who may have cancer or other illnesses, but there's also a public health concern. Because just, we, can I just pause course, you there? This is the rule that if you're if you if you're here illegally or you're here without leave to any kind of leave and you've exhausted all your asylum applications and appeals and, and that kind of thing, that you don't get free medical care. You get charged, you get a bill at the end of it. Precisely. And uh, and you also then have uh, information sharing between NHS trusts and immigration enforcement. So if you go to seek medical care, you may be more likely to be subjected to immigration detention powers are removed from the country. So those measures in combination prevent many migrants from accessing healthcare. And that is not only an issue about individual health rights, it also is a public health concern. And that's why a number of organizations uh, led by Liberty last week called for those measures to be immediately suspended in light of COVID-19. So as well as reading through the 300 odd pages uh, and what's in there, much of which is very concerning, we also need to think about some of the things which are omitted. And that issue about the hostile environment is a fundamental human rights issue and a public health issue, and they haven't grappled with it, and they need to. And immigration detention as well, because yeah, yeah. Because, because there are currently 2,000 odd people detained, really, to, to affect their removal from the United Kingdom. Nobody is going to be removed in the next few months, at the very least. No, and there's evidence suggesting that their health has been placed at risk, obviously, in that environment, well, in the well, same way that prisoners' health is at risk. In that yeah, and, 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 they, and they could all just be, be released. I mean, that, I mean, that is a deep concern and, and one which I, th I think is going to be litigated by detention action quite, quite shortly. Um, Jude. 
I, th- I my understanding um, is that um, that they are that people who, undocumented migrants are still eligible for um, some emergency treatment, including for infectious diseases. Um, but um, you know, clearly, there's also, as is the case in many countries, actually, where there's a quite a, a complicated system of different rules and regulations. There's often a lack of clarity, both among care providers and uh, people seeking care, in terms um, of what uh, people are entitled to, um, and that can both be a deterrent in terms of um, seeking treatment. Um, it also, can actually pose an obstacle to people. Um, providing care so I think there needs to be um, you know there needs to be a very very close look at um, all these all these different uh, regulations and laws to make sure that everybody who needs care is able to do so um, uh, is able to access it um, in in this time. Are there any other particular issues with the bill that people want to raise? I think in the end we need to bear in mind that this is a UK measure pushed by the government to deal with a national situation. But ultimately, where you have a piece of legislation that come, if it comes into force, and it seems very likely it will come into force, that clearly has implications that are negative or results in backward steps in terms of enjoyment of social care, social security, social assistance, uh, the right to an adequate standard of living. Ultimately, the UK courts and the UK government aren't going to be the final judge on whether that's human rights permissible. And ultimately, the UK government and that legislation will be you know, assessed and answerable in terms of international human rights law. And what I would say is I think that there has been really interesting and excellent insight from the other panellists uh, or contributors to this podcast with regards to the situation, the problems that the bill potentially poses in terms of, you know, UK or European human rights law. But I think it's very important indeed that to remember in the long term that even if it passes, it isn't just going to be that, it isn't, it isn't just going to be the domestic or the regional human rights framework against which it's assessed. And there are very, very clear, huge problems in terms of what is proposed in the bill from the perspective of international human rights obligations, which the UK has signed up to. Uh, and just one brief point on whether or not the powers of detention are going to be used. In the past few minutes, we've had our first arrest in the British Isles for failing to self-isolate in the Isle of Man. Yeah, and, and that was somebody who who arrived on the Isle of Man um, and was told to self-isolate for 14 days and refused and now is, is, has been arrested. And this is going to, I mean, as the virus spreads, it's going to be hugely, um, it's going to be much more common. Um, and... Yeah. Without this and, and without safeguards and training, and he, I mean, it, it, it's it's pretty mind-boggling. Thank you very much because it's been really. Thank you. Sorry. Okay, so th- thanks to everybody um, thanks, so thanks much. You, Adam. Uh, that's been really interesting. And and I really yeah, hope I really hope that we can meet again in better times and that everybody stays safe and well um, and that in a few months' time we'll be looking back on this and picking up the pieces and hopefully it, it won't be as bad as 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 we'd feared but but who knows and and i think there is a role for human rights here it's not to it's not to just be the criticizers we must also be the sort of constructive supporters of the of 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 policies which um which are clearly designed to protect rights and and not to attack them um we must not be knee-jerky but on the other hand we're going to have to be um slightly 
annoying um, and frustrating for the public authorities who just want to get on with their job but might be doing the wrong thing and i think that's the role of of, of that's the delicate balance to play here which is which is always um not an easy one so thank you to so much to my guests um judith nicola keelan and Aoife. the better human podcast is kindly supported by goldsmiths law and their pioneering new llb undergraduate course taught in london with goldsmiths rich heritage of social awareness and engagement you'll study with students and academics passionate about human rights and social justice if you want to support the podcast you can do so at patreon.com forward slash better human the research producer is natasha holcroft eames who produced an amazing detailed note for this episode which i'll publish and samantha bruff is the podcast editor thank you so much to everybody who put this together see you next time